Are you called to ministry? Throughout the month of March, Midwestern Seminary is giving away free resources and content to equip you to pursue your calling for the church. Your calling is too important to pursue unequipped, so we want to gift you with helpful books and articles, scholarships to seminary commentary sets, Logos Bible software, and more. Enter to win these giveaways at mbts.edu slash called. Everyone who enters can receive free ebooks during the entire month of March as well. This is an incredible giveaway. You can win scholarships, you can win helpful books, you can win commentary sets, and you can win a Logos Bible software package. That's incredible. And there are so much more that they're giving away over at mbts.edu slash called. Go check out this giveaway. Everyone who enters can receive free ebooks during the month of March. So there is really no reason to not enter this giveaway right now. mbts.edu slash called. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of training the church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English on this bright, beautiful, well, it's bright and beautiful in Colorado. <laughs> it's muggy and Always. gray in North Texas, huh? Always bright and beautiful here, like 300 days of sun a year, a little bit of snow on the ground, probably going to go sledding a little bit later mm. with uh, Buddy the Elf. <laughs> it's just kind of what we do here in, uh, in Colorado. Okay. I'm, I'm committed to not leaving the house until it looks better out there. Yeah, well, I think that's the right call. Uh, we I had to get out in it to go grab coffee beans. This is the exact kind of morning you don't want to wake up and realize you don't have coffee. And then I woke up and that's realized, the worst. man, I don't have yeah. coffee. So I had to go brave the driving in North Texas after a little right. bit of rain. When everybody is like, wait, how do we drive cars? Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. like... When it's cold and rainy in North Texas, people are like, do these cars work the same way they did yesterday? Mm-hmm. You're just mm-hmm. driving all over the place. And like then there's maniacs. the, oh, there's but, a wreck. Let's all slow down and look at it. Mm-hmm. Like, no, yeah, we would all right. like to get where we're going. Yep. Um, well, uh, today we are talking about Exodus 25, and we're specifically talking about the design of the sanctuary and the tabernacle, um, the instructions. Now, this is where, we've already talked about this, this is where in your Bible reading plan you start to wonder, okay, where's the story at here? What, 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 like, why am I reading about this ancient building and why do these colors and these materials and these supplies and these very detailed instructions about what's going to go where and who's going to wear what and how they're going to build it and what the design is going to be. You start wondering, why does this matter? So let me just kind of set the context and then I'm going to put Jen on the spot and have her read Exodus 25 verses 10 through 22. But while she's looking at it. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of background here. Uh, God has delivered his people. He's brought them out of Egypt, and he's now instructing them in how they are to live in and with his presence. Um, uh, Exodus 20, there's a turn, there's a shift, and it moves from what has been kind of the narrative of Israel's deliverance from Egypt um, and they're, uh, God's bringing them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And now in Exodus 20, in light of this story of deliverance, God is now giving them some instruction. It starts with something that we're very familiar with, the Ten Commandments, but then it quickly moves into things that we are less familiar with. What are we supposed to do about the Sabbath and festivals? And what are we supposed to do with servants? And how do we make restitution and laws about social justice? And then in Exodus 24, we see another picture 
picture of the covenant that God has made with Israel being confirmed. And then in 25, we shift back in to something that we're less familiar with, which is instructions about the tabernacle and sanctuary. Before Jen reads this, JT, let me just ask you, and Jen, feel free to weigh in here too. How is Exodus 20 and beyond, how is all of this moral instruction, how is this not legalism? How is this not God saying, if you do these things, I will love you? Yeah, I mean, this is still good news. This is still gospel, especially to the Hebrew and Jewish ears that are hearing it, because God has just delivered them. This is one of the things we talked about in our last episode is the gospel in their mind has happened. The good news of God coming through a deliverer to deliver them from Satan's sin and death or Pharaoh and the Egyptians and uh, exile, they're not being delivered into the presence of God. And this is good news that God wants to dwell with them. To oversimplify it a little bit, in systematic theology, we might use the categories of justification and sanctification. Exodus 1 to 19, you might say this is their justification. They're being delivered and they're being set free uh, from slavery. And now they're going to get to be sanctified, to be made holy. This is really Exodus chapter 20, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. How are we now going to go live in the land that God has given us? And both of those things uh, are good news. It is not good news that God, it is not bad news that God says, here's how you should live. That's actually good news Mm -hmm. that God graciously comes to his people and instructs them about how to live in his presence. That's right. That's right. Jen, would you read Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22 for us, just to give us kind of an anchor passage? Yeah, uh, before I do, I just want to sort of set it in its context. We just had Moses saying, hey, here are the things we're going to ask you to contribute. This is is what God is telling Moses to tell the people to contribute. And so then the very first item that is described that's to be built is the one that I'm going to read to you about. So the order matters. So here we go. Um, In verse 10 of chapter 25, it says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. There we go. There we go. So now the Ark of the Covenant um, is actually one of those artifacts in the Bible that uh, even beyond the Christian community, people are familiar mm-hmm. with, uh, largely because of its role in pop culture stories uh, like Indiana Jones, right? Yes. That's, that's where I first learned about I bet, it. I bet it is. I mean, I saw Indiana Jones before I read the Bible. I, no, I would say that there are probably a majority yeah. of 
people, at least people our age, I don't know if younger, who know about the Ark of the Covenant, not because they've done a deep dive on Exodus 25 mm-hmm. or in Leviticus 16, but because they watched Indiana Jones or their parents made them watch Indiana Jones or whatever. Uh, but the Ark of the Covenant is incredibly significant. Uh, it's more than an artifact. It really is. And this is this is strange for us who don't often think of the intersection of the of heaven and earth. It is a holy object. Mm-hmm. We we don't think about objects as holy very much. Um, and there's there's good reason for us to be careful over some of that language. Um, but our discomfort with holiness and the material world is not a discomfort that the Bible shares like at all. And that's maybe part of the imaginative gap that exists between us and Israel is that it is very difficult for us to imagine holy places and holy things. And yet much of Israel's story is connected to like actually real concrete places and objects uh, where the presence of the Lord has deemed them to be holy or sacred. JT, you look like you were going to say something there. Well, I, th- I think you're right. I just, just kind of adding on to that as somebody who kind of came into context with this outside of the biblical narrative, you know, you're, I think you're right that we do have a hard time understanding material things to be holy because we kind of do have this, maybe a weird Gnosticism as it relates to holiness, that we, we Gnosticism is this idea that only spiritual things can be holy, not physical things. But I do think culturally we think physical things are valuable and can be venerated. Like even think of the movie Sandlot and like the, Mm -hmm. not to give away the plot line, but stealing a Babe Ruth signed baseball. Like how many of you at home have like a signed baseball or something from your grandfather, your grandmother that was given to you that like you, you venerate this Mm -hmm. thing and think it's holy. Now, of course, I'm not trying to make a one-to-one comparison to a Babe Ruth ball in the Ark of the Covenant. It's close, but it's not the same thing. Uh, but we are not unfamiliar with physical things being venerated or physical things having very high value. And so that's kind of where the Hebrew mind is right now is this this is a this is a reminder of all the things that God has done, and it's going to be the very place where God resides and dwells with them in his holiness, that's right. Jen, just real basically, what is the Ark of the Covenant, and where would we find it? Well, the Ark of the Covenant would be in the most holy place, and one of the reasons that it shows up first in the list is because if you were looking at a diagram of the tabernacle, and I think that's a great exercise for people to do, you would note that in the ensuing descriptions of what are to be made, it, there's a movement from the innermost place and where the things are made of the most precious materials into the outermost place. And that's on purpose. That's to show us that not only is God going to dwell with his people uh, on the on the mercy seat and communicate with them from there, but that there is a progression outward toward the people. It is God coming to them, not them coming to him. Now, they will approach him uh, in layers through the tabernacle complex. But I think it's significant that we start with that piece because it, it reiterates God's intention to dwell with them, that he is coming down to them. Uh, which is um, significant because it is so different from the other uh, pantheons that they would be familiar with. Uh, In those systems of belief in Egypt and in Canaan, it was a progression of the worshiper toward 
the heavens instead of heaven coming down to the worshiper. So what the um, Ark of the Covenant represents, among many things, is the place where God comes down, uh, which makes him Mm -hmm. uh, so different uh, than the gods that they would have been familiar with in Egypt and the gods of the Canaanites in the land that they're going to. That's exactly right. And we've talked a little bit about this in past seasons. And I know we talked about it last season. But when you think about uh, when you think about God and, and really I'm saying here the God concept. Israel had been met with a lot of different depictions mm-hmm. of the divine. Mm-hmm. That Egypt was full of mm-hmm. it. Okay. But when we think about God as a concept and we think about other competing versions of God, you can look at this almost as a spectrum of transcendence and eminence. Mm-hmm. Transcendence being God is set apart, eminence being God is right up close. Um, On this spectrum, false gods either vie towards one extreme or the other. They become indistinguishable from creation, meaning they are hyper-eminent or over-eminent, meaning they're so near to the created order that they're indistinguishable from it. This is something like pantheism Mm -hmm. or panentheism. And then there are depictions of God that are what we might call hyper-transcendent, meaning they're so set apart from creation as to be unreachable or apart from communication to creation or the created order or with it. And Israel has encountered um, a pantheon of false gods that are all across the extremes of this spectrum, hyper-transcendent or hyper-eminent. And yet, with the sanctuary and the tabernacle, they are encountering Yahweh, who is not at one extreme or the next. His transcendence is not compromised by his eminence, and his eminence is not compromised by his transcendence. And nowhere is that more clearly attested to than the actual construction of the tabernacle with its various kinds of spaces for various things. It is in the center of Israel's camp and in the kind of in the most interior holiest recess of the tabernacle itself is going to be the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, this place of the what we might call the um, the closest experience of the presence of God in this world is going to be in this place. And yet it is right in the middle of Israel's camp. And yet it still remains largely unreachable except for the high priest and only then once a year. So this is the intersection that depicts Yahweh not as so set apart that he's unreachable, but or so close as to be indistinguishable, but yet in his beauty and in his holiness and in his perfection and his divine being, he is transcendent and eminent at the very same time and yet not prone to the extremities of being one or the other. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, the the design of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant specifically is a telling of that. Um, the Ark of the Covenant contains something. What's within it? Yeah, it's called the Ark of the Testimony in a lot of places. And you heard that word testimony repeated a couple of times in the passage that I read. And the idea of testimony is so significant as a theme throughout the rest of Scripture. Um, When you think about bearing witness to something, that's what we're talking about. And the theme of bearing witness pervades the Bible. And so then we should ask, if we're talking about a testimony in relation to the Ark of the Covenant, then what are the three things that are in it? Oh, I just, spoiler alert, there are three things. 
Uh, what are the three things in it bearing testimony to? What are they bearing witness to? Um, there are three things in the Ark of the Covenant that will be placed in there, and that is the copy of the Ten Commandments, um, Aaron's staff that budded, and then a jar of manna that uh, God provides for them in the wilderness. So all three of those really clearly pointing to Christ in the New Testament. Um, when we look back with, with New Testament eyes on that, um, he's the bread that comes down from heaven. He is our great high priest, signified in the staff that, that buds, that shows that God has chosen Aaron to, for that role. Uh, and he fulfills the law perfectly. Um, so if you think about the, the command that the credibility of a witness is established based on the testimony of two or three, anytime we see mm-hmm. three witnesses, we understand that to be a perfect and complete witness. Um, and one of the places we see this easily throughout the Bible, not to steal JT's favorite content, but is in the Trinity itself. Mm-hmm. That's good. I never thought about that. I never thought about that as a Trinitarian picture. Is that what you're suggesting it is? Yeah, God bears perfect witness to himself. Hmm. So a lot of times you'll see human witness is a two is a is a is two people uh-huh. uh, and then divine yeah. witness would be would be signified by three. Hmm. That's really interesting. So so at the Ark of the Covenant, there is it's in the Holy of Holies. It contains these the the this testimony mm-hmm. to the character, the faithfulness the being of Yahweh, Mm -hmm. who he is, what he has done, what he's promised to do. Um, And yet it also serves a sacrificial purpose. We see this in Leviticus 16, um, the day of atonement. Uh, The day of atonement is is, is a day where the high priest enters in to offer a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of Israel. And the Ark of the Covenant factors in, in in a major way to this sacrificial atonement, right? Because the blood is going to be sprinkled on top of what is sometimes called the mercy seed, or uh, sometimes I think it's translated as the atonement cover. Uh, It's really the the top of the Ark of the Covenant itself. Uh, I I guess, well, let's start with this. We've introduced a word into the conversation here that's important. We've defined it before. Let's bring it back again. Atonement. JT, when we say atonement, if the Ark of the Covenant is going to factor in in a big way to Israel's yearly day of atonement, we need to know what that word means. What, What does the word atonement mean? Yeah, atonement doesn't make any sense unless we first define sin and separation from God. I mean, they're, they are still, despite the fact that they have been uh, rescued by God and liberated, uh, delivered by him from Egypt, they still are under uh, the law, and they are walking still in disobedience, the same way that all of us do. They, they, their sins haven't been completely forgiven, so they're in need of a blood sacrifice in order to be made right with God. And so uh, sin still plays a significant role in the life of Israel, and so does the mercy of God. And this is where the mercy seat comes in, is this blood sacrificed by the Lamb on the Day of the Atonement would be brought in by the priest and sprinkled on the mercy seat to offer atonement. And that word, I don't love this definition, but I think it's the easiest to remember, means you're at one with God. And that's that's fine. It's, 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 a, it's a simple way to remember, atone, at one with God. And it means your sins are being removed, you're being forgiven, and you're being cleansed, which means you your your relationship with God has been reconciled and restored. The, the priests would do this on a regular basis to make sure that Israel and themselves were at one with God. And this is something that the New Testament writers 
also pick up on, not to get to the New Testament too fast or to Jesus too quickly, but they begin to speak of, so the, the, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but uh, in the first century it had been translated in the Septuagint, which was written in Greek. And the Greek translation for this word mercy seat is hilasterion. Uh, and, and Paul picks up on this, the author of Hebrews picks up on this. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 25, if I could just read this briefly. He says, uh, God presented him as the mercy seat. So Jesus himself, his body and his blood is becoming the, and the word there is hilasterion, uh, by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Now, that term, hilasterion, has been under a lot of debate. Does it mean that God's uh, uh, wrath has been expiated, meaning that it's been expunged, God is no longer wrathful? Or does it mean, uh, or not that he's no longer wrathful, that there's no longer wrath to be borne by God? Or does it mean that sin has been, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting these terms wrong, propitiation mm-hmm. uh, means uh, uh, that, or or have we been cleansed? Has has, has, has uh, Jesus' blood cleansed us? And I come to the school of thought that says, yes. Uh, the atonement offers us both the good news that our sins have been cleansed and God's wrath has been totally expunged and exp- like we, we are no longer under the wrath of God. And that's what was happening then as well. Uh, as the priest comes in and offers uh, the blood, blood sacrifice of the lamb, Israel's sin is being cleansed and God's wrath is being uh, 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 quelled. It's being stopped. But this would have had to have gone on forever if there wouldn't have eventually been a the final lamb of God who comes to uh, forgive the world of their sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's right. I mean, I think that's incredibly crucial for us to understand because not only is the Ark of the Covenant significant um, as just an artifact, not only does it contain these testimonies, but it also functions in a liturgical, ceremonial, and sacrificial way. And we cannot overemphasize how significant the Day of Atonement was for Israel. This is uh, the most significant sacrifice they offer every year. In Levit- we hear about this in Leviticus 16. I'm going to read this and then just make one reflection on it. And then I know that Jen wants to say something about the Ark as its role as a throne. In Leviticus 16, verses 16 through 17, reread about the high priest. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is able or no one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. The high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. He takes the blood from a sacrifice goat, one would be killed, the other one would have the blood of the killed goat placed upon it and sent into Azarel or the wilderness, but the one who was sacrificed, its blood would be sprinkled on top of the Ark of the Covenant and in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And in this way, the Ark of the Covenant is in the most holy place a depiction not only of the presence of God among Israel, but of the mercy of God to forgive the sins of his people. Uh, We'll get to the way that the lampstand and the bread of the presence serves to depict God's relationship to Israel as well, but it's not just a sacrificial altar. It's also a throne. Jen, I know you wanted to say a couple of things about this and the ark's role as a throne. Yeah, and significantly in the tabernacle structure, it's the only article of furniture that we will discuss that is for sitting. 
it's the only seat mm-hmm. in the whole place, which implies that anyone else who is interacting with this tabernacle complex would be in a role of service. But um, the the description of the Ark of the Covenant would have conjured to mind for the original audience typical thrones of the time. Um, maybe you've seen uh, in in an archaeological in a museum or something a throne from an Assyrian king where there would have been lions flanking either side of the throne. And so in this case, when we hear about the cherubim flanking either side of the mercy seat, that's that's meant to say, yeah, this is a throne, um, and God is going to come and sit on his throne uh, in your midst and he's going to communicate with you from it. And so then when we fast forward all the way to the end of the story, you shouldn't be surprised that in the book of Revelation, the word throne just keeps coming up again and again. Um, In fact, in the entire New Testament, the word throne occurs 54 times. 44 of those times are found in the book of Revelation. Um, There are 12 references in 11 verses in Revelation chapter 4. And if you recall how Revelation chapter 4 starts, um, it's with the call for, is there anyone who's worthy to open these scrolls? And then they turn and they see the description is one like a lamb slain. In other words, Christ has been slain. His blood has atoned at the mercy seat. And so then in the rest of the throne scenes that we see throughout the book of Revelation, they are in reference to um, God seated on his throne, reigning and ruling. The mercy seat is no longer a place where atonement needs to happen because atonement has been made finally and fully. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your your copy today. And, and I think we'd be, we'd be remiss to not point out that uh, what you were talking about in terms of sitting and standing motifs, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews mm-hmm. invokes as well to distinguish the ministry of Christ from the ministry of the priests that have mm-hmm. come before him, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, is that he is a greater high priest uh, because he has come and he has been able to be the sacrifice and to be the priest who has offered it once and for good. It doesn't have to be this regular ongoing thing. So as the high priest had to come in every year in his 
Israel's life. And that was for the Day of Atonement. Beyond that, there are sacrifices being offered constantly uh, in and around the tabernacle on the altars mm-hmm. we'll discover throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. But Christ Jesus comes, and not only is his throne the place from where he rules and reigns, his throne is also the place from which, from where he offers a once-for-all atonement. Um, this is one of the reasons why, uh, I know we've talked about this, and we've recommended it before, but Jeremy yeah. Treat's book on the crucified king is such a fantastic connection here because the Ark of the Covenant as both place of atonement and as throne for God is a foreshadowing mm-hmm. of the cross of Christ as both the place of atonement and as the proper throne of Yahweh's Messiah, uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, that the Ark of the Covenant being uh, both a glorious throne and the altar of atonement is a picture of what the cross of Christ is, which is a glorious throne and an altar of atonement. It was such a significant connection to make because, you know, for years you would hear at Easter about the passion of Christ and you'd hear about that he's, they mock him by dressing him in kingly Mm -hmm. robes and hanging the sign over his head. And then you begin to realize, wait a minute, this is all a purposeful illustration of the thing that is foolish to the world is wisdom to God and, and vice versa. And so even though it looks like he is in his greatest humiliation, he is in fact, um, he is in fact the king who is who is um, being exalted, even even in his work on the cross. Which I, I just, I, I was like, why did no one ever tell me that? That feels really, really important. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jer- shout out to Jeremy's yeah. work. If you haven't picked up the Crucified King, you should. It'd be a great read leading up to Easter this year as well. He also has a new one in uh, New Studies, and not New Studies Biblical Theology. It's like mm-hmm. a small little systematic theology, just, just the atonement Jeremy treat. I forget it's from Crossway. I have it here somewhere actually, but it's a, I would even, if I, I like hand it out like candy mm-hmm. to church members, like it's a really, really good book. That's good. That's good. So let's talk about some of the other pieces of, uh, that we find here. Um, cause we don't just find the Ark of the Covenant. We find the table for the bread and we find the golden lampstand and we're also going to find an altar. Um, and so when we think about the table for bread and the golden lampstand, these get less airtime than the Ark of the Covenant does. And that's, that's fine. The Ark of the Covenant does have a very special role that does seem to echo in a very pronounced way through the, through atonement, um, throughout the rest of the story. But the table for the bread and the golden lampstand are not inconsequential, they also are telling a story and serving a liturgical purpose for the people of Israel. Um, let's start with the table for bread. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the simplest way maybe to think about it is like, this is Yahweh's house, mm-hmm. and he's inviting people into his presence to be with him. Uh, come and eat with me. It's going to be lit. This is a place where you can it's come and lit. enjoy the presence of God. It's going we'll to be lit. <laughs> it's going to be lit. Let's get lit. I've, I've, I've I'm just been, proud Jen before. caught that one before yeah. I did. She was like, yeah. bang, she got yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have I ever told you guys this story about this? Just real quick, I could I could let the whole knowing no, faith no, podcast please, know. Let us know. This is a funny yeah, story. Tell us. Okay, I, I feel like I shouldn't. This feels dangerous. No, no, no. Right you, now. you should Danger. definitely say Do it. it. Okay, my my first my first uh, Christmas Eve service ever. Like we had put hundreds of hours into planning this oh, yeah. storyline. Yeah, had never done a candlelight service before. And so we're like, how many candles do we need? And where are the ushers? Like we had put, I mean, we wanted to get this right. We're thinking about how do you instruct which way to hold the candles, everything. Like we, we had this nailed because we wanted to get it right so we could keep doing it again. And uh, I proceed, for, first of all, I proceed to realize I do not have a lighter on stage. Like I finish my sermon, and I begin praying and I'm like, I don't have a lighter. So I start mouthing to my staff, staff in the middle of my prayer, like, 
Like I'm, I, I, I'm just mouthing it to them. They run. I do a five minute prayer about little baby Jesus. I don't even know what I said. I need, I need a lighter desperately. They finally get the lighter to me. I light my candle and I literally say, "Let's get lit." As I light the candle to sing "Silent Night," uh, it was. Uh, I didn't even know I said it. Like I think I blacked out for a little bit. I was just so nervous and so uh, just flustered because I didn't have a lighter. So the next year. My staff, I, I walk into my office for Christmas Eve services uh, that afternoon, and they have thousands of fake candles and had hundreds of little matchboxes with the phrase, <laughs> let's get lit. Uh, printed I still find them in my office to this day. So hopefully it's not like an, uh, you know. So anyway, uh, this is Yahweh's house. This is where he lives. And this is, he's demonstrating the kind of God he is. He's the kind of God that invites his people to a table with him. Uh, this is something we're going to see foreshadowed, obviously, uh, in communion and eventually uh, in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Is, is he's a God who's inviting people into his home. Uh, not only is he, and we'll see this uh, in John chapter 1, verse 14, he's the God who comes to his people to tabernacle among them. He's also the God who offers meals to his people and invites them in not just to his presence, but into fellowship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's right. Good. What about the lamp? What about the lampstand? Well, the lampstand is fashioned suspiciously like a tree. Uh, which should mm-hmm. should perk our ears up. Mm-hmm. Every everything about the tabernacle is is whispering about the garden, in some way or another. And the, the table of showbread representing God's um, perfect provision for the children of God, as we're going to see throughout the wilderness wandering, and then in a spiritual sense, He He pr- provides perfectly our our bread from heaven for us. And then in the lampstand, we see whispers of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. It has seven branches on it and a base. And so um, and it's it's supposed to look like olive uh, buds and flowers. And so each of those branches, the seven representing the, the perfect light that we receive from God, um, and that we're going to hear later, obviously, that Christ is the light of the world and he's the bread from heaven. So all of these things pointing toward their fulfillment in Christ, um, but also meant to make us think about what was lost in Eden. If you think about, you know, we're going to hear about cherubim worked into the curtains. And so we have cherubim guarding mm-hmm. the entrance to a space in the tabernacle where there is a tree of life. And it is the tree of life that Adam and Eve are being protected from once they are cast out of God's presence in the garden back in Eden. So. We're seeing that that tree of life now has a certain kind of access um, that has been given to the children of God. Something that was lost in Eden is is in part restored here and will be in full restored in the in the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, I, there there is a sense in which um, the ark, the table for the bread, the lampstand are telling Israel um, and the priest and really Israel through the priest a story about what God's presence means, mm-hmm. you know, God's presence means there, that there is a wrath averted and the Ark of the covenant and the mercy seat uh, and the table for bread, there's welcome extended. And then the lampstand, there's a witness to the world that was mm-hmm. and is to come. And I mm-hmm. think that these mm-hmm. pictures demonstrate that the presence of God is not just forgiveness, but it's also fellowship and that's really important. Is Israel is going into the land not merely because God forgives them, 
but it's because God delights in fellowship with them. This is the same reason why we see meals accompany covenant ceremonies throughout the story of the Bible. Certainly, uh, we see it with Abraham, but we see it in the Lord's Supper. This was a part of covenant making in the ancient world. When God is giving Moses the law, he invites Moses and the elders of Israel to come and to feast in his presence. And so this is a part of the whole story that even though um, there is a little bit of restricted access into the Holy of Holies and into portions of the sanctuary and tabernacle, God has placed the tent of meeting right in the middle of Israel with all of these signs of not just do I forgive you, but I am inviting you to fellowship with me. And that's really important. I think we think a lot about what the tabernacle is, is the place where Israel goes or the priest of Israel go uh, goes to secure forgiveness for Israel. That's true. But it is also the epicenter of Israel's fellowship with God. And those things are intimately related to one another. They're, they're not exclusive to one another, even if portions of the sanctuary and the tabernacle or even artifacts are primarily reserved for one function over the other. Mm-hmm. I think another important thing to just note about the table for bread, and I say this because um, as I've ministered in a context where food is often offered up in relationship to the dead, and that was not uncommon in the ancient world, just to note the bread that's there at the table for bread is not for God's hunger. It's not to satiate God. It's not to appease God. This is something that you see in the ancient world and still today in places that food is given or set aside for the dead in a way that is there to kind of fill their hunger uh, in the absence of a body. This is not what the food is there for. The bread is not there on the table for the Lord. The bread is there as a sign to Israel that God invites them to feast in his presence, to, to fellowship in the company of a meal. Meals aren't inconsequential in the ancient world. They're really not consequential in the, uh, inconsequential in the global world. They can feel transactional to us. But anytime you see a meal in the story of the Bible, it's there. It's being told that it's there because it's it's doing something important. You see this across the whole story. So the table for bread, the food that's offered there, the sacrifices that are offered are not because God has a rumbly tummy, okay? <laughs> he does not need the sacrifices of Israel in order to have his, uh, his hunger satiated. God is without hunger. He's without the passions of earthly desire and need apart from the earthly ministry of Jesus. Um, and yet at the same time, he does invite his people to feast in his presence. So, okay, I don't. Are oh, we going to talk about the third thing. item that's in this room? Yes. Why don't you talk about it? <laughs> well, if you think about it, so we've got the altar of incense is the is the third article of furniture that's in the holy place, and it occurs to me that we have another threefold witness to the person and work of Christ. And in fact, I, I think that it probably corresponds to the threefold witness that we find in the in the in the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place because. You have in the Ark of the Covenant, remember, you've got the Aaron's staff that budded, which signifies the priesthood. And so then you can correspond that to the altar of incense, which is a is a the place where the prayers of the saints ascend to God and the priest ministers. Um, you've got the table of showbread, which would correspond to the jar of manna that's found inside the, um, the Ark. And then that leaves you with the Ten Commandments corresponding to the lampstand, which should make any good... Um, Bible student think about one of the most memorized verses in all of the Psalms in Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So I love how even as they're working in layers in toward the the most holy place,
place that we have this repeated threefold witness to the perfect and complete ministry of Christ. Yes, that's right. What do we... What what do we learn? Okay, let me just ask one more question here, because I think for a reader here, they might be wondering, uh, is the presence of God exclusionary? Because as we read more about the tabernacle, yes. as we, okay, well, there we go. Um, thanks for, uh, we hope you enjoyed yep, the discussion okay. today. Grace and peace. Um, uh, the, well, this is a, a little bit of, of honesty, kind of frustration for me, because when we talk about the presence of God, we often, like, we'll see... Instagram memes of like just enjoying the presence of God this morning. And that's true. That's a true thing. I'm not saying you're not. But one of the things that we have to be reminded of is all of God's presence is a mediated presence. Mm-hmm. Whenever God's presence is unmediated in the Old Testament, it strikes fear and awe and it puts you on your knees or face down because of what we're going to talk about next. Mm-hmm. The holiness of God, his utter separation, his weightiness and his, his the creator-creature distinction from who we are. We have never been in the presence of anything like this because he is not a created thing. And so even here, we have this mediated presence, whether it's through uh, a high priest or whether it's through a sacrifice of blood or whether it's through a sequence of of bronze and silver and gold uh, furniture. What, I mean, like this or uh, uh, the the curtain that is that is drawn. I mean, this is a mediated thing. Uh, and that's what makes, again, the ministry of Jesus so important is because he becomes our high priest who mediates the presence of God, uh, of us to God in the heavenly places and God to us by the Holy Spirit. And so when we say exclusionary, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's exclusive. You can have access to the presence of God through the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ whenever you want. That is the good news of the gospel. He will send you his spirit. You're, you're called to be full of the Holy Spirit. While at the same time, you do not want an un—if you stand before the presence of God without the high priest, the mediator, you will be struck uh, with awe about his holiness. And that's just something that we don't talk about very often anymore. Yes. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And if you're a Nazi, it'll melt your face off. Well, that's exactly right. That's what I learned first. That's the theology I really got when I was seven. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Well, I think I know what engineer Brad is going to pick as the clip from this episode for social media. So, uh, so congratulations, Jen, uh, for the most commented on clip that we will have, no doubt, for the whole season. Need some context, or I'm going to get canceled. Yeah, I think so. Um, oh, yeah, maybe. A lot of people are going to yeah. like you, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yes, that is exactly what I was hoping. Um, and I think that's a great place to begin to land here. There is, uh, in the construction of the tabernacle and in the detailing of it and what pieces go where and who can go uh, into what places and at what times. And this gets more explanation even as we get into Leviticus. I mean, there is a lot. Everything you're seeing here is like in paragraph form, whereas in Leviticus, you're going to get pages of explanation on what to do and who can go and what, what they're going to do when they get there, what they should be wearing when they get into the room and what they should have done before they go into the room. And, and all of this is for exactly what JT is saying, which is the presence of Yahweh is holy. The presence of God is holy. Now, when we think about how this develops over the course of the Bible, our mediation is no longer Aaron or the high priest of Aaron. It is the perfect fulfillment of the high priestly office. It's the perfect fulfillment of the high priestly role, which is Christ Jesus, that the priests who came and and again, we've already mentioned this, so much of Hebrews is based off of demonstrating a fulfillment of what you see here in shadowy form, which is that Christ 
comes to perfectly fulfill the priestly role that was imperfectly practiced by Aaron and his sons. And if you need to think that they were imperfect practitioners of it, just flip a few pages over uh, in Exodus and you're going to find out that this high priest is faulty. He, he is faulty, and the high priest that will come after him will be faulty as well. But there is one who comes who perfectly satisfies what is required and allows us confidence. This is, um, this is the beauty of how Hebrews details this, moving to depict Jesus as the perfect high priest. And then we get to Hebrews 10, and what do we get? We have confidence to enter the most holy places because of what Christ has done. So what was restricted to only the high priest, Aaron, and or those who, have, who came after, him is now given to all of Christ's people because of what Christ has done. We have confidence to enter the holy places. This is the crucifixion of Jesus when the veil is torn from top to bottom, demonstrating that there is now an access that was not there before. So what JT is saying in terms of mediation of the presence of God, yes, it is true across the story of the Bible, but it is not true in the same way. There is greater access given because there is greater um, inclusion in Christ in his representation than there would have been in Aaron and among the priests. And we'll talk all about that in the next episode. Anything else that we just feel like, gosh, we can't end without saying something about this? Anything else about Nazis, Jen? <laughs> I feel like I've exhausted my Nazi comments for the day. <laughs> okay. Well, that is a comfort to all of us. Um, uh, in the next episode, we're going to talk about the high priest and the priesthood. Um, and I'm really excited to dive into this in terms of why what the priests are wearing and the high priest specifically is telling the story of Israel's redemption, past, present, and future. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. If you want to find Knowing Faith, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can go to trainingthechurch.com slash support to find some cool things, a newsletter that we send out once a month, uh, along with access to episodes early and ad-free, um, and some other just specific benefits to those who jump on to our supporting group. Uh, Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you heard something from one of the sponsors today um, and you want to find out more information about them, you can go to the show notes. So if we referenced anything, recommended a book, pushed you to a conference or uh, a seminary and you want to find out more about them, you can go to the show notes and there are links to all of that. You can also go to trainthechurch.com and look under the Knowing Faith podcast webpage and all of that information is there as well. Uh, We hope you check out our sister show, Tiny Theologians. They're doing a narrative podcast focused at teaching kids the truth of God's word. It's fun. It's creative. It's built and made for your kiddos. Go check it out. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or theology? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminary's For the Church Institute, which offers courses in Old and New Testament, Christian theology, and more, including the newly released course on missional leadership. Again, this is free theological training that you can use for your own equipping, for the equipping of those in your church, and it is available for groups or on your own. You can learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for theological training courses, free theological training courses today. Go check it out.